With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. No, we just thought we could just open up a market and run it. This this city said, oh, no, no, you need to get permit that allowed us to do this on the campus. And we thought that this would be a fairly easy thing because a lot of people were starting to come to the market and it seemed popular. And who wouldn't want to fundraise for your local public school who clearly needed the help? And it turned out the exact opposite. We had so much opposition. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, you are going to be proud of it. Doesn't matter how badly you got beaten. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go for that. (laughs) I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. You just heard from Pearson Blates and Whitney Weston, co-founders of the Melrose Trading Post. With over a quarter million visitors a year, Melrose is one of LA's most popular and famous open-air markets. On your visit, the first thing you notice is its vibrant energy. No two stalls are alike. At one, you might find a vintage Coca-Cola jacket. At another, you might see custom-painted sneakers. Wander towards the dining area, and you'll also find local musicians, dancers, actors, and spoken word artists sharing their talent. Since its founding in 1997, Melrose has been a driving force in nourishing and sustaining community. See, when Pearson and Whitney first conceptualized Melrose, they weren't dreaming of creating LA's buzziest and busiest shopping ground. Their dream was simpler. We were artists, actors, we had lots of different jobs, and we both worked for the same catering company, and uh, there was a, an event and I was managing the event and Pearson was my bartender and he was an hour late. Ah, more like 50 minutes. I had to way. set up his whole bar for him. So it wasn't a very positive meeting, I have to say. <laughs> I was not happy. But um, we had a mutual friend and um, we connected through this mutual friend and would see each other at different events. Why did you bother connecting with this very late person? <laughs> That's a really great question. I have no idea. I think because we did have that mutual friend and, you know, and she talked him up and asked me to give him another chance. And I said, OK. What did she say about him? She said that he was pretty new. He had just moved to L.A. and, you know, he was interested in theater and I was producing theater and he was producing theater. So there was that connection. We might have like met for coffee or something and talked about different possibilities of shows to produce together. At that time, we're doing theater to be seen, to invite agents to, or casting directors, which has got great. But I sort of felt like it was just very selfish. And I thought it would be great to do theater that was a little bit more community oriented, that raised awareness or raised money. And that's sort of where my head was at. Lonely is the, I think the, the key word, my memory of it is, 
is when you're just trying to get acting work and maybe you're in a, a show and then you get to know those people well, then they all go away and you spend a lot of time kind of on your own trying to figure out a path and community theater or a theater where it's more than just about you trying to get work, that is about making connections to the people around you. I wanted to create a sense of home in LA and I just didn't have that at the time. What did your roles become as you started taking on building this community theater project? I don't know if we saw it at the time, but I do think Pearson's very big picture. He just sees the big and I see the, the very small details. And I think that that combination was very successful. I have absolutely no doubt that if I try to do all this now on my own, it, it just wouldn't happen. Like any theater project, I mean, we didn't really have any money, but we were also very good at fundraising. So we did everything that we could. You know, just the printing, we'd go into a printer and say, can you do this for free? And no, we can't. Can you do it for $50? Okay. We tried to sell ads in the program. We went door to door. Uh, any sort of costume things we would borrow from people. We asked people to donate. We asked people to put an ad in the program. Uh, I had one friend of mine that actually gave us $200 and I thought I was going to fall off my chair. What that $200 could buy in a production like that was incredible. A goal in front of you, you're working toward pushes you to make connections with people. There'd be no reason not to walk into a Home Depot and ask for a donation unless we were producing the show, right? And, uh, but we definitely did that. And that's where we got the paint. So when we were fundraising, it wasn't just about putting on the show. It was always about the entity that the show would support, whatever that nonprofit was. And we do that to this day. Building this theater was a huge win for the pair, but it wasn't their ultimate goal. As they grew more established in the community, they began to ask themselves, what next? You know, I remember the day that I drove by this empty parking lot and imagined a, a market that could somehow connect to the school. And I remember that thought, this could be a real fundraiser for theater. Not a couple hundred dollars donation, but man, if we could start a market and then use that money to produce theater, that's what was in our head at the time. And wouldn't how great that would be. And that's when we, uh, we thought of approaching the school. And we also had an interest in working with the students too, because I just lived right down the street. There definitely was a sense of isolation that the school had. There was big gates that went around and, you know, everyone was afraid at 3.08 every afternoon. A girlfriend of mine that was visiting from Chicago and we decided to go on Melrose. We threw her suitcase in the trunk when we parked right across the street from the school. And when we came back, someone had broken into the trunk and stole her suitcase. And people walking down the street and people in the coffee shops all said, you know what? It's those Fairfax students did that. And I was thinking, well, how do you know? But they were just being blamed for anything that happened in this area. And so there's a stigma against the students that yeah. were here. And there's like this whole, essentially had a bad reputation. Yeah. And it, just the injustice of that. And so that's when I, I talked to Pearson. I was like, you know, let's, we should go over there and just see, like, how can we help? What can we do? We called the school for months and they would just hang up on us. <laughs> 
we tried everything. We were like, hi, we're, we live in the neighborhood. We'd like to help. And they would put us on hold and never come back. And it was just odd. Odd because like you saw so much opportunity here. Yeah. And they were not seeing that same opportunity. No. They thought we were calling to complain. That's your, That's what most people did. So we decided to do a different approach. And I called and asked when their PTA meeting was. When we went there, it was a table with the principal and two parents. That was the parent meeting. 3,400 students, and there were two parents. And that was it. Two parents and the principal sitting at a table. And uh, now we said, we live in the community. We'd like to help. And the look on their faces were like, they just didn't believe us. They're wondering why we crashed a parent meeting. And it's interesting because we're friends with the principal today. She's actually on our board. She talks about that day a lot. Like, I had no idea who these people were. It looked a little too young to be parents. Uh, didn't know what was going on. But, you know, the, the beauty is that she said, yeah, there, there are some things you can help us with. We have no money. And we were like, okay. We can do that. What, raise money for them? Yeah, we'll do a flea market in the parking lot. No, that was one of the ideas. Yeah, we're, we're like, let's do it. fundraisers, right? That's what we did for the small theater. We just started thinking of ideas that we could do for the school. Said we just got to know them. We, we volunteered. We, we made coffee for them. And that was big, actually. They were very appreciative. And that was the thing. We realized that just doing small things there was so much appreciation. So you have built up the trust. When do you pitch the flea market? The spring of 97 yeah. is when we pitched the idea. That makes sense. So they say yeah. yes to this flea market. Now you have to get vendors for it. How do you go about sourcing those vendors? Going to other markets and telling them that we have a great location for a market. One of the ideas that the principal had at the time was that each Sunday would be sponsored by a club or organization, and that would be our group of people that would help us, you know, sweep everything up at the end of the day. They helped us set up tables. They did all of that. So this is how you started involving students. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was it like working with those students? What was their thoughts? They, they have so much appreciation for the fact that they have this market that's raising money for them. and. When the basketball team volunteered, they were raising money so that they could go to a tournament in Hawaii. And these students didn't have money for plane ticket to Hawaii to do a tournament. Like that was so out of reach for them. They were here seven o'clock in the morning, ready to go. It was great. Did they raise the money to go they to Hawaii? They did. Yes, wow. they did. Yes. God bless them. Yeah, they yes. did. It was so rewarding. It was so, and then, then Pierce <laughs> said, you know, we should do this every Sunday. We had no plan. <laughs> we had no plan at all. We did not. <laughs> we did it week to week. We just figured out every week there was a new thing that we figured out we needed to do. And we just did it. We just made a lot of mistakes. A mistake right at the beginning was uh, bringing too many vendors before you have enough customers. There has to be a balance and they were doing anything we could. And at the time we are doing things like setting up a lemonade <laughs> stand, literally doing that on Melrose Avenue and saying, come on, here's a free lemonade, come on in. I think that when we started, we hired all of our friends. As we progressed, we realized that we had to 
we had to set boundaries. It's not uncommon for early stage founders to have their fingers in multiple pots. After all, to build a business, you have to know the business yourself. But if you want your project to expand, you inevitably start to bring others along for the ride. This is the point where you realize that simply knowing how to do everything yourself isn't enough. To keep the show going, you have to master the art of delegation. Though Pearson and Whitney understood this, they were still grappling with its nuances. Just because they enlisted the help of their friends and community members didn't mean they were good to go. What they lacked was structure, a coherent blueprint for how to harness their network at maximum efficiency. As challenging as organization was, things were about to get even more complicated. You know, we just thought we could just open up a market and run it. And uh, the city said, oh, no, no, you need to get, it's called a zoning variance, right? A, a permit that allowed us to do this on the campus. And we thought that this would be a fairly easy thing because a lot of people were starting to come to the market and it seemed popular. And who wouldn't want to fundraise for your local public school who clearly needed the help? And it turned out the exact opposite. We had so much opposition. It was rough. We had this hearing. Do you remember that, Whitney? Yeah. Uh, it was filled with residents saying, no, we don't want this in our neighborhood. We don't want to deal with the parking. We don't want to have other vendors setting up, selling the same things we do in our stores. And they had very critical things to say about our students. I remember they were complaining that people were complaining about the food. And the zoning administrator at one point said, well, if everything is so bad, then why don't you go in there and help them and explain to them how they can make it better as opposed to standing here at this microphone and complaining. And I remember the whole room just like applauded. So we had teachers, we had students, we had administrators, we had so many people come up to that mic in that hearing and say how great the school is and how great the market is. And it ended up, we, we won hands down uh, because the mission was there. We were there for a reason, which was to support this school. And it was a good reason. So after you won, what does that mean for the future of the market? That means that they gave us a... Um, 10-year permit that's been renewed several times since then. So the money that we raised through the trading post, what we did is split 50-50 the profit. So 50% would go to the school. The other 50% went into our nonprofit. 50% was going to the school. 50% mm -hmm. was going to the nonprofit. Yes. How are you guys surviving? Great question. I, I remember it didn't even occur to us to pay ourselves. We were still catering and acting getting money where we, where we could. We were looking for office space because we were running all of this out of our, you know, uh, apartments and uh, we needed space on the campus. So I had a custodian open up the door and I walked in and it was this incredible 1940s structure with vaulted ceilings and no supports in the middle of the room for supporting the ceiling. That is a perfect setup for a theater. And we immediately imagined what the space could be, which is a beautiful theater. And we asked around, is there anyone who knows how to design a theater? And a number of people People said, well, the best, if you look at the small theaters around LA in the late 90s, the best guy is James Eric. 
However, he is currently in a coma and uh, he may not survive. And he got better to a point where he could leave the hospital. And uh, I was lucky enough to meet him. We had already raised a significant amount of money for the school. So when we approached them and asked them if we could lease that building, they were like, sure, they weren't using it for anything. And then ultimately renovating it. It took us two years to renovate that space into a theater. I think that we, you know, like I had said earlier, we had made had to make a switch where we had a lot of our friends working, where we had to hire people and and making sure that we got everybody on payroll and made sure we had our insurance and our workers comp and we wound up with full-time employees and we had to make sure that they had health insurance. I mean, we, we started having to not scrap it anymore. We had yeah, to be- Yeah, an actual yeah, like working a, organization. Exactly. And, and legit. We didn't know how to do that, so we learned. And I think that was really hard. Yeah, our, at least my original thought was this was not going to be a full-time job. <laughs> that running Greenway Arts Alliance and the Trading Post and all that we do, I'd be able to do this part-time and have an acting career and a career in the theater. I think that was a big transition for me, realizing that what was in front of me was a dream situation, but it wasn't the original dream. I had to reconfigure what I imagined my life to be and adjust. So that was a big change for me. Tell me how the market changes in 2008. So I think with the economy struggling, I think that people were losing their jobs and looking for different ways to make money. So we had an influx of vendors, of people that were trying to, you know, throw their hat in the ring to to do something different with their job. We also had a lot of lot more customers because people did not want to go to the mall. They didn't want to buy retail. They wanted to get a bargain. We felt the shift because we just got busier. We had more customers, we had more vendors, we became more popular. That was huge for us. Yeah, and we became the the weekly market. There In LA, there's a lot of markets that happen every month and we became the weekly market and people could depend on a good experience coming here. People were looking for good deals and we were a good deal. When things don't go our way, we assume the worst. However, sometimes the unexpected becomes an advantage. So far, Pearson and Whitney had been sporting a hands-on volunteer-based approach to running Melrose. But an increase in vendor interest meant it was time to shift gears and think bigger. Time to turn their loose network into a more consolidated organization. So they adapted, changed. After all, change is the impetus for growth. Tell me how COVID started changing the market. Well, uh, Pearson said um, this COVID thing is going to be bad, Whitney. I think we're going to have to shut down the market. I'm like, no, we're not. That's not going to happen. But obviously it did. We got the letter from LA Unified School District letting us know that we had to cease operations, as did everyone else in the city. So, you know, we, that's what we did. Emotionally, what did that feel like? Unbelievably scary, uh, as everyone, I'm sure, felt. I'm just not sure what's next. 
we were particularly nervous because we were on the campus of a high school and uh, no, they're in the business, LUSD is in the business of, of educating students, not a property for a market. So I thought they were going to be very conservative and, and, and very much worried and shut down for a long, long time. Uh, we got our staff together and we sat everyone down and said, we will, we're going to continue to pay you and we'll figure out how we'll do that. And we just, and they were grateful. And we just said, we'll figure out ways to continue. So, you know, we made it work, but we also were able to reopen in August 2020, which we were the only game in town. And so we mapped out, we spent Pearson and some other staff people mapped out a way to open safely. We were originally in a, uh, a configuration that encouraged people to be close together. The vendors were very, right up next to each other and our food court area, there was a very festival setting with everyone sitting close together. So we had to come up with this new version. So we, uh, moved a lot of the market into the various courtyards that exist on the high school campus and just spread out the vendors and created this circle of retail where you could enter uh, uh, a, uh, an entrance and, and do a full circle and feel like there's lots of space uh, while you're shopping and lots of space in the food court. So COVID allowed you to expand, basically, um, or prompted you to expand, and now you're covering basically twice the area that you were before. Yes, and uh, and also uh, more people started coming. And the health department would literally come every week because they had no nowhere else to check, <laughs> right? Everything was closed down, so they came and saw how we were doing. and. They were very impressed and we got no write-ups and they were very comfortable with more people coming in because there was so much space for them to be outdoors. I think that, um, you know, the whole reason we came to Fairfax was to help the school. You know, I mean, at this point, we've raised uh, over $10 million. Wow. We started this all out as a nonprofit, right? And, uh, I remember at the beginning, that was all we thought talked about was, was the mission side of it. Wh whether it was producing plays, because you were just so excited by theater and, and, and getting a chance to be in a, a group of creative, interesting people. That was everything. Uh, that and supporting this school and, and really focused on, uh, you know, seeing the work that you did and seeing the result of it right away. You know, we mentioned like the basketball team going to Hawaii, but you walk through this campus, you look at that trash can, that bench, uh, all bought by the Melrose Training Code. It's an entire classroom of, of you know, computers, library rug, you know, just everything you walk around. We can say that, that we supported that. And that, that feels really good. And that was, that was all the energy. And the word social enterprise did not exist back then. At least I didn't hear the word. Um, so this idea of a mission-driven organization, every day I can see uh, the result of my work benefiting the people around me. It's the best. <laughs> it just makes, makes you, uh, you know, it sounds cliche, but it just makes you feel, feel good. And it makes you feel like 
the, the hard work that you're doing every day to keep it all going is worthwhile. And just a, a, a bigger salary or a, a nicer house, I'm sorry, I, I don't do it for you. What had started as a project to bridge the gap between the students of Fairfax High and the surrounding neighborhood has now become one of LA's most beloved open air markets. Today, Melrose Trading Post caters to around 5,000 visitors weekly and hosts hundreds of vendors and local artists. The LA Times calls it the epitome of broad scale shopping, while Vox News describes it as a teen fashion paradise. Despite its current renown, Melrose still follows the fundamental vision that inspired its inception, uniting the community through arts, education, and entrepreneurship. Pearson and Whitney's journey isn't one of ambition or personal glory. Instead, it's a story about service, about harnessing your passion to serve the needs of others while building something bigger than yourself. Their example demonstrates that big dreams begin with humble acts. By interacting with someone outside your circle or simply asking, how can I help with that? You might just be setting the stage for the production of a lifetime. And if the stage hasn't been built yet, remember, you can always start by building it yourself. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, May B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadat Rai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Kandaza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.